This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 30th of January 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jon. Hello, Jon. Hey, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Final episode of January. Indeed. A month gone already. very, very quickly. <laughs> I'm still recovering from the New Year's Day party and... It's already February almost. Okay. <laughs> Things it's happen. Some party. Yes, it was. You so were there. That's the Speaking biggest. of parties. <laughs> yes. Um, of course. See how I set that up for you? Oh, you're such a, such a <laughs> wonderful co-host. Wait a minute. Where's the one? When's the wonderful co-host joining? Um, so speaking of parties, uh, DataWorks Summit. So we talked a little bit about the, upcoming uh, European DataWorks Summit, but the call for papers for DataWorks Summit San Jose has uh, come out. So DataWorks Summit San Jose is 13th to the 15th of June. But if you would like to speak there, then your deadline to get your um, session abstracted and that sort of thing in is February the 9th. So only a couple of weeks left. Indeed. People should be getting their thinking caps on about uh, what it is they'd like to educate the rest of the world about their uh, journeys, trials, and tribulations through the wonderful world of Hadoop. Yeah, and if they have a great idea, let us know. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast as well. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so with that, I think we're on to the main meat of the episode, aren't we? Yeah, and I'm actually doing some research because we are doing a part two of uh, Hadoop sizing today. And I'm trying to figure out when we did have part one because we were <laughs> intending to do these two side by side. And then, well, things got in the way, interesting things, and it got pushed back, 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 I back. Think it was, I think it was like October last year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going back. I'm in episode 55 and I still haven't found it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm giving up anyway. Quite some time ago. Yeah, but that time we talked about uh, sizing of your cluster, basically. Yeah. How many nodes and things like that. And uh, as an intelligent listener would have remarked, we didn't talk at all about the individual components of a cluster. And that's yep. where this thing comes in. This is about this is talking about the size of your of your server chassis if you're on, in an on-premise situation, or about your VM sizes if you're going on a public cloud or a private cloud or anything like that. As far as I know, that's the only two choices you have today in cloud or on-premise. Pretty much. So if anybody knows anything else, we'll have a third part. I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess maybe you could say private cloud, but that's still instant sizes as far uh, as I'm Well, the moment you go private, the moment you go... With cloud, I always mean virtualization. Okay. If it's private or not private. And I guess you could also put uh, Docker images under that layer as well. Just kind of seeing how, because when I prepared this episode, I must admit I didn't really think about Docker images because, to be honest, you shouldn't really Dockerize a Hadoop cluster. Run Docker containers on the new yarn. Sure, go ahead. No problem there. But having a real Dockerized Hadoop cluster, uh, not many advantages because you're going to be committing the whole chassis to your Hadoop anyway at that point because you're using the same kernel and your kernel should be tweaked for Hadoop. And at that point, it doesn't really make much sense to do it with the current version of the whole software stack. 
So, bringing the world back to what we were actually here to talk about, though. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Um, So, we're here to kind of run through some of the major considerations around, you know, node node sizing. And nodes, as uh, Jan said, could be physical, could be virtual, um, could be public cloud, could be on-prem. And I think there are... uh, as always, the answer to this question is like the answer to many good questions in IT. It depends. Um, but, but that being said, we're going to try and give you some rough guidelines to at least think about and some different approaches that you can consider. Um, I think the maybe the first way to start thinking about this is probably the, I think, probably the easiest one, which is the, the on-prem world, which is has been around for a lot longer and people mostly understand a bit better. And then sort of we'll start to, as we run through, start to bleed more into into cloud and, and where the differences and deltas are there. Yeah, it makes sense because on cloud is usually a simpler solution. Because yep. on-premise clusters, you'll have probably a mix of workloads running there because you have one big cluster that runs your Spark, your Hive, your HBase, whatever. In a cloud environment, you typically will have separate clusters because you have shared storage anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So All pretty right. much a lot of what we're going to talk about with offer the on-prem stuff should also be somewhat valid in a uh, cloud environment. Yep. But you'll probably see it's going to be a bit smaller. Caveats imply. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, the first thing is, and there'll be a, a link in the uh, in the show notes, um, one thing to start um, looking at when you're sort of considering this is the the overall no density uh, the trade-off that that ensues uh, when you're looking at sizing your uh, sizing your nodes so here what we're talking about is primarily um, the underlying storage component the the, the piece that's going to be consumed by HDFS um, you know a, a typical data node is somewhere between um, you know on the data drive side at least, 12 between two and four terabyte disks. Um, I think if we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, I would have said very adamantly, you know, two terabyte drives, more spindles, you know, across more nodes is better, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, the way that the stack has, has evolved, you've got things like LLAP, um, you know, memory is becoming more important. Mm-hmm. You know, Spark has come a long way in the last two years and is sort of changing the way that people think about this. And I think, you know, realistically, if people are looking to start up a sizable data lake nowadays, I would be probably suggesting that, you know, 12, uh, four terabyte drives is a sort of a nice place to start for, for data nodes. Yeah, it, it's different how you look at it these days because earlier uh, clusters, your the way you lay out your storage was really mapped on how you're going to use it because mm-hmm. you're talking <clears throat> excuse me you're talking MapReduce at that point you wanted to have a spindle per CPU core so you didn't or one per two CPU cores so so that you didn't have any resource contention you had a nice spread of your workloads there because a lot of the workloads all the workloads were always touching disk. Mm. These days, as you mentioned, Spark and Hive going to LLAP, also doing in-memory caching, the way that you actually touch that disk is still important, 
because your data originally will come from there. So you will have something, you have the relationship yeah. there. But the caching layers for LLAP, and if you look at Spark, which is totally in memory anyway, you basically hit your disks at the beginning of your job when you ingest your model in the memory. And then you really don't really look at your disks anymore. Well, at the end when you write the results out. And at the end, well, maybe. And <laughs> typically what you write out is smaller than what you read in. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. there are cases where it's different, where it's actually inverse, so this possible. So again, it is still valid to think about this. But the relation between the the workload software and the, the data layout is a lot less strict, a lot less stringent these days, I'd say. Yep. So the the sort of the link that we're going to point to is um, a really good article that takes you through some of the fundamentals of um, the sort of the the no density trade off. And what this is talking about is um, yes, you could you know uh, load a chassis. I mean, we've seen you know commonplace chassis now that have you know twenty four even forty eight slots for for discs, mm-hmm. um, and you can put you know anything upwards and sometimes beyond eight terabyte drives in each of those slots. The thing you need to think about is what happens in the event of a node failure. Well, the first thing that happens is you've got a lot of stuff then to re-replicate. And the, the, the nice thing about this article is it runs through some simple examples of, you know, if you've got this many disks and this node size, and it, it it's relatively simplistic. It doesn't sort of take account of a lot of the overheads and things like that. Um, it doesn't really take account of sort of network bandwidth limitations. Um, but it does give you an idea of, you know, for a certain data node size, how long might that take to re-replicate that data? And it's the, the question is, how long can you expect to run your cluster in a essentially a degraded state? Um, you know, is is running is sort of the time to re-replicate that. Uh, you know, ten hours is that acceptable? What if it's twenty-four hours, forty-eight hours? Um, you know, is that an acceptable risk? You know, for another, what if another node goes down that adds more uh, time, and more data to re-replicate? Mm-hmm. So, it's a nice, um, you know, quick and easy, simple thing because. Many organizations, when they're starting down this journey, just think, well, uh, you know, I've only got this amount of data. I'll just cram it onto a few big nodes, and I'm only doing stuff in memory anyway, so it'll be fine. (laughs) And the answer is, quite often, actually, you probably won't be fine. You know, you need to find some sort of balance of node size versus replication time and those sorts of things. And it gets, it gets, as with a lot of these things, it gets easier the larger the clusters are. Yeah, obviously the scale always helps a bit. Now there was used to there used to be this caveat when uh, if you have a archive only cluster, if you're just doing an active archive, then at that point having bigger disks made more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. that doesn't solve your problem with uh, replicating your data because the bigger nodes will still take a lot longer and your re- time to to resumption of full availability, let's say, will be large on bigger nodes. That was more of a, a guideline when you were thinking about how to yeah, consume the data. If you were doing a lot of Hive with MapReduce, you won't have a lot of spindles because Hive actually got faster from that. Yep. Looking at today when that's less of an issue, I would say that that rule no longer applies. Having a bigger archive node 
you have this all the negative results from that s- still apply because the only resulting negative uh, things are based around the uh, uh, rebuild time of your node when they fail. The rest is less yeah. important now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on the on the positive side, though, if it's purely an archive node, you can you know dedicate IO just purely to re-replicating. So. Um, yeah, networks true. have that, got a lot that faster mitigates a bit. that sort yeah, of thing yeah, yeah. so that should negate it somewhat but yeah there's there's still a there's still a limit to how much disk you want per node because also don't forget that with uh, things like GDPR coming there's also some guidelines coming in where you need to be able to give the government results within a certain amount of time mm-hmm. and those can be quite short if your rebuild time is uh, two weeks let's take an extreme example you might get into trouble there yeah. yeah of course, yeah. that being said, even if you're doing a rebuild, your data is still available, right? Unless you have exactly. a, a catastrophic failure of uh, more than your replication number of nodes, you should still be able to give them the answer as long as you can have the rebuild not consume that much resources that you can't do any querying anymore. <laughs> yep, indeed, indeed. Okay. So now, One other thing I want to talk about before you move on to something else, because I know how you work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this is all talking about local uh, attached disks in your chassis. Um more and more people are using NAS, using uh, remote storage layers where your compute becomes ephemeral and your disks are located uh, remotely in... I know Iceland was one of the first ones that started uh, looking at Hadoop space, but these days you have Ceph cluster clusters, you have whatever, right? So there's a lot of uh, things of way to do that, and obviously in the cloud you're pretty much always going to do that because whenever mm-hmm. you put uh, storage in the cloud, it's in a storage rack somewhere else. And the moment you go there... <sighs> There's an, how would you then look at this storage rule set if you're in a remote storage kind of uh, situation? So in a, in a remote storage um, situation, again, I, I think you still, need, you still need to differentiate between on-prem or cloud. So, for example, um, well, well, yeah. So I, I think you still do need to differentiate between on-prem and cloud because... Um, for example, if you're doing that sort of situation and you're looking at uh, an on-prem solution, maybe you're looking at Isilon, maybe you're looking at uh, IBM's Spectrum Scale Storage, um, maybe you're tinkering with uh, something like Ceph on, with a, mm-hmm. with Community. Now, if you're looking at that, there are probably still things that you will want on your on your nodes to help speed things up even further. I'm seeing more and more people. Um, using SSDs now as uh, uh, SSD sort of level caching, um, and that can speed things up quite considerably. There were some benchmarks I saw probably a month or two ago with um, people using uh, disconnected storage platforms but making use of uh, local SSDs for certain operations and they were seeing some really nice performance boosts from that. So well, I think were they doing intelligent caching themselves or having a multi-tiered solution that did automatic caching? Uh, it was all automated caching. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I think there's there's still a, there's still a place for thinking about um, at least when you're talking about on-prem, there's still a place for thinking about your nodes, even if you're using a separate storage platform, a NAS-based storage platform. Are you saying that they had the SSD caches local on the chassis? Yes. Oh, right. So it's a distributed caching layer at that point. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. And that was I mean, happening automatically. Wow, that's interesting. 
Yeah, I'll 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 see if I can dig up the uh, the link a little bit later. But I mean, from from your perspective, when when things move to cloud, how does that? Uh, how do you think that's that affects the bulk of users? Uh, well, it's basically you have no choice, right? Well, the moment you go to a cloud, well, you do have a choice. You can have the S3 uh, cloud storage from Google or the the blob storage from Azure using those slow blob store things. It uh, doesn't really work. It's good for, to have your data there, but basically the first thing you do is load it locally anyway before you start working on it. Now, all of the public clouds are trying to put some kind of more performance big data store in there, which alleviates the problems a little bit and probably is good enough for things like Hive and Spark because there for Spark latency doesn't really matter that much because once it's in memory, you don't care about the disks anymore. If you're doing HBase, for example, that can get, still give you a problem. So you have the, uh, the the third option of having those locally attached hardware disks on your VM, which mm-hmm. basically are not locally attached hardware disks <laughs> on your VM because that doesn't exist. There isn't a little guy in the data center putting a disk in your chassis at that point. It's still a remote thing. So the latencies will also always be high to what you can achieve with uh, on-premise uh, chassis solutions. That being but said... You've also got things like uh, things that you can do to improve that by um, adding sort of provisioned IOPS, so you sort of um, you guarantee uh, additional IOPS, um, you know, against those nodes, so that you can have a more predictable. No, that's, that's harder than you believe than you think actually. Now, the one thing I will say about this is that if you use very cheap VMs, they will have a, a, a much oh, bigger yeah. throttle. Yes. So don't expect to have the same performance on your disk I.O. and network I.O. when you have the most cheap VM versus the most expensive VM. They do scale that accordingly as well, which is, yeah. use, which is needed because why are those cheap VMs cheap? Because they can put a lot on one, on one chassis. Yep. And if you have to put a lot on one chassis, it means, it means you have to split the IOPS into more little streams, which means yep. you get less. If you make a bigger VM that takes the whole chassis, hey, you get the whole 10 gigabit network card and the whole SATA interconnect or whatever they're using at that point. So from that point of view, it's definitely an issue, uh, definitely something to think about. But there isn't really a way of guaranteeing it with the blob storage things. I know on Azure, there was a way of having more storage accounts so you could stripe across storage accounts to get uh, over some, um, uh, what you call it, um, I would say almost non-existing uh, bottlenecks there just caused by the infrastructure but mm. all of the, those existed as well on the other clouds as well but that's going away now because of the back-end architectures being changed all of these things get removed uh, google cloud is no longer using their blob storage whereas pushing their google cloud storage is called i think much uh, on azure you don't have the wasbies anymore you go to manage disks on amazon they have the uh, it's not EBS, but to have something local as well. So those things really don't matter anymore. That was a big issue, I think, up to about three years ago. Mm-hmm. You really had to be aware of the underlying architecture of clouds. These days, a lot less because they do a lot more for you. Um, end of the story, if you go into cloud, you don't have to think about it anymore because you can't really influence it that much. Do listen to your cloud um, experts that when they know which cloud you're running on and they know how that cloud works, they will be able to give you some good advice on what you need because, of course, the local attached storage, even though it's remote still, will be more expensive than the simple blob stores. There's always a a, a balancing act between cost and uh, performance. And basically, Hadoop still has the cheap is good solution. Don't go very expensive, simple commodity is good enough. 
and figuring out what that good enough point is that's the hard part yep okay now you talked a little bit about uh, uh, caching uh, with SSDs. Uh, thing that's very uh, yeah connected to that is the HDFS storage steering. Of course, it's something that haven't been seen in use a lot. To be honest, have you seen it used a lot in the in the wild? Uh, I see it used as customers grow. Um, it's it's very rarely do people start looking at mm-hmm. it early on. Um, it's usually once they've got. Um, a few hundred or in some cases mm. a few thousand nodes and their as their retention um, periods increase and the volume of data that they're retaining increases they start thinking about how they can do these sorts of things more efficiently so HDFS storage tiering for those that uh, that haven't come across it before is the ability to essentially mix um, storage types within the cluster so you know you could potentially have um, a, a very wide variety of different storage policies. So um, you could have uh, HDFS tiered storage allows for you know an archival tier, which might be slow rotational disks. You could have um, sort of uh, fast rotational or standard rotational disks that would be, you know, your typical 7,200 RPM, you know, 4-terabyte drives. You could have fast rotational, which could be 10K RPM SAS. You could have, you know, SSDs potentially at different speeds. You could have even RAM disk is an option with an HDFS tiered storage. Um, And you can have these either mixed within a chassis Mm -hmm. or you can have them split across different chassis now you can once you've got these different underlying variables you can then set a storage policy so your storage policy is something like um, to to pick a very simple example you could say um, hot warm cold so those are your three storage policies hot could be all three replicas sit in uh, SSD. Warm could be all three replicas sit in, you know, standard rotational. And cold could be all three replicas sit in slow rotational. But similarly, you could have, if you wanted, you know, an interim um, uh, storage policy that would say, you know, two replicas in SSD and one in fast rotational. And, you know, you can really start to get very granular with these. Now, that's all very well and good, but typically um, what I try and recommend people do is keep these things as simple as possible because the simpler you make them, the easier they will be to administer. Um, So I would typically say, you know, you may find further on down the line that you'll need more complex um, storage sharing policies. And if you do, then that's fine. You can add those. It's not a, a great di- a great issue. But I typically tend to recommend that people keep um, sh- entire chassis at the same spec of storage. So an entire chassis full of SSDs, an entire chassis full of fast rotational, an entire mm. chassis full of archive rotational. And the nice thing about that is that enables you to, um, you know, change the the sort of the size of each of your storage tiers independently. Um, another nice thing about keeping it simple like that is it means that if you go through the process of you know, a node fails, 
Well, if you've got multiple different kinds of storage in that node, and maybe you've got different kinds of storage in multiple different nodes, then you need to think, well, which disks has that one got in? You know, what do I need to order as replacements? You know, what do I need to get uh, online to, to sort of um, to replace that failed node? Uh, it just it's just painful to go through that process. Yeah. Whereas if you know it's a it's a fast policy node, therefore it's all SSDs, or it's an archive node, therefore it's all slow rotational storage. It's a lot easier to to deal with managing that. And I say keeping those uh, those storage tiers independently um, scalable is also very valuable. You'll typically you'll build up more and more archive faster than you'll build up. Your your hot tier, typically, but okay. all these things vary. There is though something that complicates this because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of vendors now have chassis that have a base for hard disks, rotational, and base for SSDs, and that can do internal tiering of their own storage component. That's separate from the HDFS uh, storage tiering. Yep. Yep. So in that case. Would you recommend that people use one or the other? If you have the hardware solution there, then don't bother with the HFS storage tiering or disable it and only do HFS storage tiering or mix and match? Uh, I think, well, I think like a lot of these things, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, the So I think the way you can have like local um, sort of uh, M2-based SSDs uh, fitted to standard server chassis, I think that's a great way to add um you know local caching separate fr- from the the tiered storage layer um so you know adding adding things like that can make um can make a nice performance boost even on sort of an archive tier um server so i think there are there are always ways that you can you know get the best out of um, the hardware architecture you have to hand. Yeah, but having a, a SSD layer on your HFS uh, storage layer kind of gets invalidated if you already have the SSD caching done by the hardware itself, right? Because at that point, even your slow hard disk rotational speed, 7.2 RPM, will also get cached in that hardware steering system so you well, don't really I mean, have a slow it's still going to be i guess it's still going to be slower than the real ssd layer exactly. because it needs to get in cache first so your first read will have that cache miss and it will always have um i mean you could argue the same thing about um you know os level caching in ram yeah, exactly you know, that's it's, it's the same yeah. that it's the same sort of concepts i mean each level of caching should give you some performance improvements whether that performance improvement is worth it or not I mean, only only good benchmarking and uh, and some decent architecture will sort of really. Uh, yeah, but there's, there's also a drawback, it. right? Because <clears throat> you kind of lose predictability. Because in the extremes, a job that ran X amount of time today will run a totally different amount of time tomorrow because a different state of your cache uh, layers is in place. And the more caching layers you have, the more that will come pronounced. Now, obviously, it's always great that if you think it's going to take an hour, then it's finished in half an hour. But the reverse is always true, also true in that case. It can be. It can be. And that's why it needs very careful, detailed analysis. You need to understand what's happening. Now, many of the hardware vendors that offer these kind of platforms will have some some guidelines for um, you know what you should do for Hadoop style workloads. In fact, your Hadoop vendor may also have some thoughts on that. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll come we'll come to sort of reference architectures. I think towards the end of things, but I think it's it's definitely okay. a valid point. 
Well, considering how long we're talking about storage, I think it's going to be for part three. But uh, <laughs> maybe to finish off the storage uh, talk, uh, storage part of this. Uh, in the past, we've always told people that SSDs weren't worth uh, the money because, yes, they're a bit better on random IOPS, but uh, it's sequential. They weren't that much more uh, fast, that much faster than standard rotational disks. So don't bother with them. I think that should be nuanced a little bit, mostly because the price of SSDs went down. Yeah, I mean, not the, the because their characteristics the, changed, but the pricing yeah. went down. The price of solid state storage is um, considerably lower than it's ever been right now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I do know of um, I do know of organisations that are now building, you know, several thousand node clusters purely with SSD storage now. So mm-hmm. it, it's um, yeah, that, that's that is that's a very real thing right yeah. now. And there's another advantage of SSDs, right, which is the power consumption <clears throat> and yeah. the heat production. Because at uh, these scales of clusters, the power that these hard disks draw becomes a real cost uh, factor. SSDs mm-hmm. typically a lot uh, uh, yeah, less power-consuming. And by doing that, they also produce a lot less heat, which means you have to cool it less, which means, again, you have to spend less power, which needs to cool again. So having SSDs today... It really makes sense. doesn't mean you have to throw away your old ages, uh, hard disks. You can still use them in the tiered uh, solutions. Mm-hmm. But SSDs definitely make sense. M.2, not entirely sure, because you can only have a limited amount of those. There's only that many slots on the motherboard, typically. And on uh, enterprise motherboards, I haven't seen them that much, to be honest. Um, of course, there's but the again, latest... Good for, good for caching. Uh, yeah, for simple caching things, but that should be something that's on the hardware at that point. And the thing that you can think, uh, the next part, the next step there then is the, did you hear about Intel Optane? Mm-hmm. I haven't had any kind of benchmarks with uh, any kind of Hadoop related uh, things there, but I have seen some uh, benchmarks where they did uh, rendering farms. Now, rendering is a typical, very easily paralyzable solution, which this thing actually hugely uh, improves the performance upon. I've seen render jobs that take two hours to get done in 30 minutes. So it's really significant. Hadoop also typically goes very easily paralyzable jobs. That's typically Hadoop stuff. So I'm very wondering, I'm wondering a lot of those Optane things would give you a lot of advantage here. The big problem, of course, is cost because those things are expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a small in the capacity. Yeah. I mean. So, but again, maybe just last uh, three years ago, we said SSDs don't bother too expensive. And I'll give it another three years, and uh, you'll have that kind of stuff becoming more uh, affordable and uh, a good solution as well. Yeah, I mean things like uh, things like the M2 um, drives. You know, LAP makes use of things like uh, SSD cache, which is mm-hmm. a pretty obvious way to use it. Um, using SSD for for shuffle is another area that it gets commonly used for, and Spark can take advantage of that as well. So there's there's always ways that you can, if you have those options um, within your storage chassis, mm. it's always worth considering. Yeah. You always need to though consider, um, you know, what's what's your bang for buck out of this? Really you know, get are use you out really going to see it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And for people that don't know M.2, it's pretty much the same thing as SSD. It's only it doesn't use your SATA bus. It goes yeah. directly on PCIe on your motherboard. Indeed. And uh, it's good stuff. Indeed. All right. So we've talked a bit about the sort of the generics of um, hardware. 
but well, I think storage worth, hardware. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've only talked only talked about storage so far. Anyway, <laughs> so let's let's see if we can shuffle things on a bit, pun intended. So, when recording this, we realised actually we went on a bit. Um, that's <laughs> very never. unlike us, I know. <laughs> but uh, what we've decided to do is slice and dice this into two fabulous episodes on uh, compute and storage and node sizing. Uh, so, with that, we'll be coming back to this topic in two weeks' time. And that means that's all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information about the podcast and there's even a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email, podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye.